I wonder if you've considered the stress an average person puts on their nervous system with stimuli, like social media, any notifications of any sort, and now add being in a highly stimulated environment of a classroom. It's really enough to make anyone need a break. But did you know that one in five of us are considered highly sensitive and that these stimuli have an even greater impact on our reactions. Knowing that about ourselves and our students is really key in helping all students succeed. Do you practice mindfulness? Do you take time? Have you considered using it in your classroom setting? I wonder if we might get better results from our students, especially our highly sensitive students, if we did a little brain training and implemented some mindfulness into our classroom practice. What are some things to look for in students who are highly sensitive or adults who are highly sensitive is something that Nikolai and I talk about. She is an incredible resource and there is so much that you'll learn by listening to her and getting a sense of some things we should be looking for with our students. I hope you enjoy this episode with Nikolai. to the podcast Education Unimagined, where give students an opportunity to share their voice in a system where often their voice is unheard. I ask them to share their experience and advice on how we can improve the experience for everyone. Welcome, Nikolai. I want to thank you for joining us today on the podcast, Education Unimagined. I am excited for our conversation because while you are not directly an educator or a student, you focus on how highly sensitive people, neurodiverse students, and people in general may present their challenges in a classroom. And I'm looking forward to talking to you about how that may impact student voice. So will you give us a brief introduction on the work that you're doing? And then we'll jump right into our conversation. I am a balance coach and I help highly sensitive and neurodiverse people prevent themselves from burning out because that's a huge struggle for highly sensitive and neurodiverse folks. I'm also a practicing mental health counselor. So I have owned and operated my own mental health practice for not close to 10 years. And throughout that time, I've just seen a lot of clients come to me feeling like Maybe they're anxious, maybe they're depressed, but at the end of the day, there's a big subset of people who are just overwhelmed and susceptible to burning out and having that manifest in all kinds of different ways. There's a group of people who just experience the world differently and process the world differently. And when you fall into that camp, it's easy to get labeled as anxious, overwhelmed, depressed, only about 15 to 20% of people are highly sensitive. So one in five. To me, what that says is 
there's a whole lot of people who actually are highly sensitive, I think even more so who are neurodiverse. But in the educational system, for example, just isn't set up to be the best fit for you. But you have to figure out what to do with that anyways, because this is the world that we're in. What would it look like from my point of view as a teacher if I have students who are highly sensitive? Yeah. So first off, I'll say, I think when we hear the term sensitive and a lot of us automatically assume emotionally sensitive. And while I think that a lot of highly sensitive people also have a high level of emotional sensitivity or empathy, it's much more than that. And not all highly sensitive people even identify themselves as like very emotionally sensitive. I'll speak from my own experience because I'm a total highly sensitive person. And it's really interesting for me to look back on my experience as a child and a young person and see how many things now make sense. My nervous system literally just experiences the world differently. So I have memories of temper tantruming before school and driving my mom crazy because I wouldn't wear certain socks. And I think we think of sensory issues sometimes when we think of people who are on the autism spectrum. A lot of educators, when they think sensory issues, they're very familiar with that world. But there are a lot of us who also just interpret sensory experiences differently, who maybe don't have some of the other characteristics of an autism spectrum disorder. I coped as a young person, and I hear this from a lot of my highly sensitive clients, because you just are overstimulated a lot of the time, whether it's by my socks when I'm really little, or sounds, or just what's going on around you. I think a lot of highly sensitive kids actually cope by becoming overachievers. I don't think all of them do, but I think that's very common. And that's a way to kind of take charge and have some control over over your environment, if you do really well in school and you check off all the boxes or things in your life are organized, then you actually reduce your vulnerability to stressful events happening. And then that can lead you to just become less overwhelmed because our nervous systems are just supercharged. I can imagine as a teacher seeing this high achieving student flip and not knowing what just happened, how it happened and being taken aback. What are some strategies that we might try and diffuse or what would you say is a good reaction and a bad reaction in that situation where a student flips on a dime? either flips on a dime or withdraws really quickly and significantly. That was definitely my pattern in childhood. I was either a temper tantrumy kid or it's like a shut down kid. And I think it comes from the same place. It comes from just that intense processing that's happening inside that teachers can't see. One of the worst things you could do is just invalidate a student's experience. And when you're highly sensitive, that happens all the time because since four out of people aren't highly sensitive, they just don't get it. My husband, he might see that it's actually a pretty simple thing to do, but he can't see that inside my nervous system is just like nails on a chalkboard. That's how it feels to me. So remembering that their experience is valid, we get overstimulated very easily by the world around us. So trying to be calm as an educator when you're communicating to your students 
but validate their experience. Try and remain calm and grounded yourself. One of the most basic tools I recommend, and it doesn't matter if you're young or if you're a grown woman who's highly sensitive, we need to soothe our nervous systems. Because what's happening is students are going into fight or flight more quickly and easily because of just how they process information. And so you need to counterbalance that by doing either what I call self-soothing. So what I've been doing, just sit in the dark and drink my coffee, watch the sun come up. Because that's very soothing to me to just like sit in darkness versus bright lights, news on the TV. I always encourage my young people to have some sort of self-soothing kit, thinking through their senses and knowing like just what are things that feel comforting to them. Because what that's doing is it's just counterbalancing your fight or flight response. It's helping heal your nervous system after it was just aggravated. What are some ways that a teacher could empower their students to voice that challenge for them or feel like the teacher mm, already validates their experience before it's happened. One of the most validating things we can do is just show that we're paying attention and that we understand. We do that by just holding space and being present for people, which sounds simple. But in 2023, when we're on social media all the time, or we're juggling 8 million tasks or a classroom of 30 kids, I don't know how much it matters for a teacher to be able to label a student's experience as I think you might be highly sensitive as much as it matters for the teacher to just validate that they're not crazy because you can feel crazy when you're temper tantruming or flipping out about something that's actually not that big a deal. And the most simple way to validate your students is just look for the kernel of truth in their experience. I was an overachiever. I don't remember why, but in fourth grade, I have a memory of like crying in the closet at school, probably because like I answered a question wrong or something. I did like some assignment and I didn't perform well. How you can validate an experience like that is you might not have any clue. It feels like it comes out of left field. Just validate what you're seeing and just say, I can tell that you're really upset right now. It doesn't have to be that hard. You seem sad or you seem frustrated because we don't get a lot of that in school. Just validation. It's very task oriented. And I think as humans, we unintentionally think that the way to be helpful is by solving problems and by taking away people's pain. So if you see a dysregulated, overwhelmed kid, I think a natural response, like me crying in the closet, probably what my teacher said is like, no, it's okay, don't cry, you didn't do that bad, or you did great, or something like that, which is well-intentioned, and I don't think it's bad, but I think true validation is being able to see what your students aren't saying and not trying to fix it, just showing them that how you're feeling is okay. I might not even understand why you're feeling way but think you want to talk about it or do you want to maybe go to guidance and talk about it where they might have a little bit more space for you than I do right now when I'm in a busy classroom it ties really well into amplifying a student's voice what you're saying by validating is to acknowledge that they 
are experiencing what they experience, I can resonate with, it's okay, don't worry, it's not a big deal. All of those things are negating their lived experience at that moment, not in general, but at that moment. And yes, our tendency as educators is to fix and minimize the emotion where all they really want is for us to say, I see you. I see what you're feeling. I see that you're hurt. It's okay. Right now, as you were talking, I see so many students wearing those earbuds. And I wanted to ask you about why students might be doing that. Is it valid that they are still able to engage and pay attention? Because from my experience, if I fight it, it's a losing battle. But if I ignore it, I'm not really acknowledging that it's a problem, but I don't know that it is a problem. Can you speak at all on the earbuds and what as educators we might be doing in those situations? Part of the struggle in education at this point in time is trying to do their best and you're trying to find what works and what doesn't work. And the fact of the matter is, is it's not an all or nothing situation. One thing doesn't work for every person. So when it comes to earbuds, I tell my own clients all the time, I don't think it's the behavior that necessarily matters as much as the intention behind the behavior. Because you can have a kid using earbuds because she or he is just punking off on you and doesn't feel like doing school today and is being challenging and checking out in a different way then I know I have plenty of highly sensitive high schoolers who really use like the earbud thing to tune out overstimulation that's happening outside of them. And then the earbuds actually help channel them into focusing on a task. And it can be some of that self-soothing sound for some people, super soothing. So if you put something on, that might actually help you get really calm and then you can focus better and perform more effectively than without the earbuds. But the point being earbuds are not like all good or all bad. It depends on each student. This is where the challenge is because a lot of teachers are in classrooms where they have 20 kids, maybe 30 in a really big class. How do you understand the intention behind the earbud use? In theory, just ask, hey, I noticed you wear your earbuds a lot and I just wanted to check in. What's that all about? I'm not trying to be judgmental. I'm just trying to understand what's effective for you. And most kids, honestly, will acknowledge when they're doing something that they know isn't helpful or they shouldn't be doing it. It's not one size fits all for every student and engaging in that conversation, talking and validating that you see what they're doing but you're not going to judge or punish immediately, we're going to assume positive intent, is really perfect for building relationships and understanding that not everything fits every kid. What are some of the things that really stimulate even normal kids, but especially highly sensitive kids? This is, ties into my work with burnout, even that I do with adults. The reason we're seeing so many people burnt out in general is we're just overstimulated constantly. We're not meant to be just consuming information as frequently as we are with the internet. We're our baseline from probably most of us. 
is overstimulated because we don't turn off very often. Most people. I want to touch on your comment about shutting off. I remember I had a colleague who had freshmen and she had them at the end of the day. She implemented a little bit of mindfulness right at the beginning of her class. Kids were able to engage or not engage. What is the benefit to taking the time to pause and turn off I know I have to get through this curriculum or I feel like I have to do this today so do I have time to build in mindfulness yeah I think this is a a battle that I fight every day in my work is when you're overstimulated and you're overwhelmed feeling like you have to stop feels like it's just going to add to the overwhelm. You're not going to get through your to-do list and it just becomes another thing to do. You have to almost trust fall into it. You have to believe that taking a break is important, but the science of it is when you become mindful and you do these practices, the way that your brain functions changes. And to very much oversimplify it, basically your brain becomes less reactive. Why that's a good thing is because reactive decision-making makes you feel like you're being productive because you're doing something. But any behavior that comes from a reactive mindset, from like a fear-based mindset, from this sense of pressure, go, 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 oh my God, I have to get it done. It doesn't mean that that behavior is actually effective for you or actually helpful. I have clients all the time who will tell me like, oh yeah, I realized I did this thing. I stayed up all night organizing files on my computer. I made my computer file folders so neat. How does that actually impact what you're working on in your life right now? It feels nice, but that came from a reactive mindset where at the time they were feeling anxious. Just want something to do to not feel anxious. I'll organize files on my computer. So mindfulness is what trains your brain to be more present and pull yourself out of reactiveness. It deactivates the emotional part of your brain that is primitive and it strengthens over time the connection between the emotional part of your brain and your frontal lobe, the part of your brain that like makes you human. And it's the part of your brain that says, here's what makes sense. Here's what you should do. The judgment and reasoning center of your brain. And when you practice mindfulness, the connection between emotional centers and logic centers, the two gets thicker, which means you're actually better able to make truly informed decisions. We talked about overachieving maybe is a signal to a highly sensitive person, but what are some other things that we can be looking out for? I think in general, all of this advice is really good for all the students that we're working with. One, to remember that every student is an individual and they all have individual needs, wants, strengths, and weaknesses. But if we're now being aware that this this challenge exists for one fifth of our students, what are some signs that we can identify? Yeah, I think signs of highly sensitive students could be like you mentioned, flipping out, getting really easily irritable or agitated in situations where it doesn't necessarily feel like it makes sense. 
sensory issues. I know a lot of my clients have food preferences that are related to like textural issues or like me with the socks. I always wear a lot of soft fabric because like what I wear on my body just like has an effect on where my attention goes. I think fidgetiness, that can sometimes look like ADHD. And I think ADHD and highly sensitive people are kind of like siblings in the neurodiverse world. I think we have a lot of overlap, but I think a lot of highly sensitive people, we can get fidgety. Either we're overstimulated. Maybe I hate this shirt and I can't stop focusing on how tight it is on my armpit and that's calling my attention all the time. Or I'm overwhelmed and I'm burnt out and I'm just getting fidgety because my nervous system just is having its own experience. And I think a lot of highly sensitive people are really emotional, not all of us. I can totally relate to the focusing on my fabric or focusing on something on my fabric that is irritating me and I cannot get that out of my mind. And now I'm thinking of some of the kids that were quote unquote troublemakers who were clearly out of their element in a lot of different ways in that classroom and those stimuli were only causing more agitation for them. If perhaps I am listening and I'm saying, wow, a lot of those things are resonating with me, A, because I'm getting really close to burning out or I already am burning out and maybe some of these things are because of my highly sensitive nature, what are some suggestions that you have for us? Yeah, I think one of the things I teach my coaching clients all the time, one of the most important building blocks of how to take care of yourself as a highly sensitive person is mindfulness. Mindfulness is what allows me to pause. And in that pause is where I have a lot of power because when you're highly sensitive, you're just going to get overstimulated all the time. The fact is, is most people aren't highly sensitive. Mindfulness practices are what train your brain and there's actually a million different ways to practice mindfulness. None of them are necessarily better than the other. All it's doing is training your brain to be present in this moment and to get control over your brain in a healthy and effective way. Because when you're overwhelmed and you're highly sensitive, your brain is going to be pulled in a million different directions. Your focus is going to be pulled in a million different directions. And you need to be able to be mindful so that you can just act with intention because from intention is where we can make the decisions that are best for us. Forcing yourself to rest is really important and that's hard too because we're bombarded with messages constantly about being productive and there's always something we should be doing. But if you understand being highly sensitive as just how your nervous system is built, then you need time to let your nervous system rest and recover from just the daily experiences it goes through all the time. You're giving permission for teachers to realize that when we are under a time crunch and when we have that agenda and we don't finish our agenda and then we're like, oh, we didn't get to this, we're actually perpetuating that myth that we didn't get anything done. But even if we stopped and had a moment and did mindfulness for a whole block of time in our class, we've actually done more than we probably would have done had we try to cram through our agenda. Yeah. And I think when you're doing mindfulness, like you're doing 
brain training, right? You're like helping develop students' brains in a way that they're not getting in other places. And I would argue that that actually then gives them more opportunity to digest any content you're going to provide versus if they're in overstimulation mode and you're just trying to cram content in, their brain will not receive it because when your brain is in fight or flight mode, even if it's low level fight or flight mode, it it doesn't care that much about like what you're telling it. It's not going to store things the same way it's going to store information as when it's calm or calm-ish. Tell me how people can connect with you and I will make sure that I include all of your connections via the show notes. Yeah, so you can find my website. It's www.fromburnout.com to balance. I also have a private support community for burnt out women in business. So I definitely have some teachers in there. It's for all women in all different settings who are struggling with burnout. And I share a lot about myself being a highly sensitive person who's more susceptible to burnout. And if you want to join that group, the URL is bit.ly.com slash burnout two, as in the number two, business boss. And that'll take you to the support community where it's a little bit more like, you know, you actually get to talk to people. And I pop in there like right now I'm running a free month long masterclass on how to move from burnout to balance. And I I do those periodically in there. That's awesome. Thank you so much. I hope that my listeners have figured out ways to embed some of these practices and really think about their reactions and observations and will help students find their voice and empower them to challenge that norm. Yes, thank you. And thank you for supporting educators and students with this work and this knowledge. I want to share an analogy about a basketball team. If you are creating a basketball team, the likelihood that you are going to stack your team with natural basketball athletes is pretty slim. You know, as a coach, that you have to train athletes to become better athletes. You have to coach them. You have to guide them. Leadership is the same thing. We have to train leaders. We have to guide leaders. We have to coach leaders. And if you or somebody you know is someone who could use some of those leadership trainings, I have a great program for you. It's called the Leadership Academy. And if you search peers, not fears, you will come across my Leadership Academy. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast Unimagined for all the amazing upcoming interviews that I have on the slate. The theme music for this podcast Unimagined was written and produced by another fellow educator, Keith McClendon. 